Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Ian and Ian. So we're just so delighted. I'm so happy that, you know, we have able to come back another week for another excited program. And I just want to know that, uh, you know, just be ready and prepared. Get your coffee, your tea, your water, <laughs> because we're going to have a real, real talk conversation tonight about uh, immigration. You know, we know that there has been a lot of changes and there's some new policies that, you know, we're going to talk about this afternoon. So, you know, you know, the goal of the platform is, is to educate and motivate someone you know, that might be watching the program live or they might be going to watch the program tomorrow or next week. So we just want to put this out there that, you know, um, all the viewers over on Facebook, YouTube, um, we'll be posting some videos on IG afterwards and, you know, the podcast and all the major platform. You just want to stay tuned because we're going to have a very, very excited um, episode today. And you're just gonna, you're probably asking how this is related to, to, to track and field. You're gonna hear about um, the sports visa lawyer. Um, you know, that's, uh, 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 that's the only one you'll see. And that's the only name. If you see that anywhere, it's gonna bring you right back to our special guest. That's on, uh, on in studio with us live today. So before we get into the real talk conversation, I'm going to hand it over to the, the health and wellness specialist, uh, Mr. Ian Thomas. Yes, um, good afternoon again to all our viewers who have managed to tune in with us over the past couple of months. You know, despite the pandemic that we've been going through, we can say our viewers, you know, they are loyal. They've been here each and every week. And uh, you guys have been inviting friends and family also to come on as we try to basically educate, motivate, inspire you guys and, and, and others, you know, in just sharing with you guys, people who have made it through life, been through the journey, but they're able to come here and share their journey and some of their testimony, which, you know, have basically been a great inspiration to all of us you know we have learned so much on this platform over the couple of months and this afternoon we expect no different as we are joined live with you say Ian the um, visa lawyer Kasenia, you know, and she's gonna tell us all about you know you as a sports athlete you know coming in just needing a green card a visa you know she's gonna lay it all out here tonight for us you know, in terms of the whole process. So we are just happy to have Cassinia on the platform. Cassinia, we just want to welcome you to Real Talk with Ian and Ian. And, and you know, we're going to give you a lot of the platform to just really inspire, motivate, plus educate people on obtaining a visa to, you know, their, their, their given talent. So welcome to the platform. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. You guys are absolutely inspirational. Um, I share your vision as far as motivating and educating. I think it's so important to 
um, take the information that we've been blessed to know and to share it with other people in a way that is helpful. It's been my life's work. Um, it's something that I do professionally and it's a tremendous honor to be here. Thank you. All right, guys, you heard it. You heard it. You're going to see it now. Um, we just want to welcome some of the early, early, early viewers that uh, that's on the program. You know, we we already start um, receiving questions about, um, you know, I think we're, we were talking about um, in the names early on. And, um, you know, it's so ironic that the first question that before we get into the program, I'm just going to answer this question here real quick. I'm going to put it on the screen. Um, you know, and this is Mr. David Payne. He has, he has been on this program before and he, he's, in my eyes, is one of the greatest story ever heard in track and field. Uh, a man that fly across the continent in, in, in about 15 hours and get off the plane and win a, a silver medal for Team USA. So, um, you know, we, we got to ask him about his name, his first name. He, he, he's the clutch pain. So he's asking now, he's, he's curious about your name to figure out what does that mean um, in, to us over here in America. Um, so if you'll be kind enough to share a little um, um, reason behind um, your beautiful name. Okay, well, thank you. As it turns out, we just were chatting before the program with Ian, and it turns out that his daughter and I share a name, except for she has the Greek spelling of my name, which is X-E-N-I-A. And um, the reason my name is spelled with a K-S is because I'm Russian and our alphabet does not have an X. It has a K and an S. So we uh, make the X sound with a combination of the K and the S at the beginning of a word. And the reason why there is this name in Russia, even though it's a Greek name, is because uh, Greeks were actually the ones who brought Christianity to Russia. So our saint names are very typically Greek names. So um, my name came into the Russian language from Greece. And my understanding is that the uh, meaning of the name is wanderer or stranger. All right. All right, guys. We're going to write that down. I'm taking notes because this is um, a beautiful name and we're so happy to start the program off with uh, such a kind gesture for the meaning of your name. So mm -hmm. guys, as usual, um, you know, we like to go back a little bit just to give you a brief history of uh, our featured guest. Um, we know that she is an immigration lawyer, but we just want to get the little background of her um leading up to how she got into her career and you know about her history of what school did she go to and just the whole inspiration to see how she really find this passion you know to especially for track and field athletes you know that you know many people might know that um over the years there's a lot of international students that arrive uh in the u.s to go to college and and to study and you know a lot of a lot of the athletes, um, you know, you find that when they come to this nice country, it's it's always a privilege if you could stay and train after your education. So for the viewers, you're going to hear the process, you know, um, all the viewers that's going to college or might be thinking about going professional one day and you want to know how to do things the right way, you know, and the right process. So long term, you will be safe and sound. So 
the first question that we're going to go um just tell us a little bit about your your background in terms of um what university did you attend and uh, for how long and really um a little bit about your studies sure sure so to go way way back um i'm an alum of the university of tennessee go vols for anybody out there that's watching i'm still a die hard bleed orange vols fan um, I graduated in 2004, so um, some of you old heads might know that Justin Gatlin is also class of 2004. He was a good friend of mine, as was Dee Dee Trotter. Um, so we all shared, you know, classes and um, Justin and I lived in the same dorm, became really good friends and I started following track because of them. So I would go to track meets at the Stokely um, Athletic Center. Um, I think they actually tore that down. Um, the, uh, the track there at Tennessee, which has been recently renovated. So at that point, I just had an interest in the sport because my friends were running. Um, later on, I went to law school. I went to law school at Berkeley and um, my first year at Berkeley, Justin was actually um, at his first Olympics. So as I was in my first week of law school, I was watching him in Athens and um, obviously it was very inspirational to see my friend win the gold, even though nobody was even talking about him. He wasn't even in the conversation. Um, but, you know, obviously as he uh, progressed in his pro career, I would follow him, um, you know, a lot of times I'd watch on TV, but I actually made it a point to start going to track meets um, around the world even. I was in Moscow in 2013, I was in London in 17, I just went to Doha. So um, at some point, you know, when I graduated law school, my first job was actually not in immigration. Um, I was a corporate lawyer. I worked in London, I did corporate finance, and I was bored out of my mind because, you know, to the... Um, to the uh, the issue of you know motivating and inspiring and really being true to yourself, I didn't feel like I was being true to myself because I was making a lot of money. Um, I was very stressed, but I really didn't feel like I was using my law degree in the way that I anticipated I would use it. I wasn't really feeling like I was helping people. You know, I was doing these massive financial transactions, and you know the um, the net effect of that on humanity was probably like zero. So I wanted to go back and do immigration law. I had done a little bit of immigration law when I was in um, law school. I did an internship. I was introduced to it. I really enjoyed it. And so when I left uh, corporate finance after three years, I got my first immigration law job. I took a five-time pay cut to do immigration. This is how important it was to me. I took a five-time pay cut from my first job in immigration, and I worked for a really famous immigration attorney down in South Florida. This guy's kind of widely considered to be the number one immigration lawyer in the country. His name's Ira Kurzban. Worked under him for a year, got some amazing training, and um, then I decided I was ready to go out on my own. I was a fourth-year attorney at that point. I was really feeling my wings, you know? And I moved to Central Florida because at the time, Justin and Didi were both here. And they kind of, you know, were like, oh, you should come here. It's a lot of fun. And so I moved here because I figured, you know, it'd be a little bit easier for me to start my firm here, a little bit less competition. Um, South Florida is a place where you need to speak Spanish. I, my Spanish is really, really rudimentary. So I decided, you know, okay, Central Florida is it. So I moved to Orlando and I started my immigration practice. Again, at this point, not having anything to do with sports. I was just hanging out with Justin, hanging out with Didi. And then um, Justin introduced me to his then coach, uh, Brooks Johnson. And at one point, Brooks, um, you know, reached out to me about one of his athletes. 
um, guy needed a P visa. He was a, a distance runner and, um, and Brooks came to me with this and I was like, sir, um, you know, I'm an immigration lawyer, but I'll be honest with you, I've never done this before. Um, and he just said, well, you know, I trust you and Justin seems to trust you, so you'll figure it out. And, you know, if you know Brooks Johnson, that's a lot of pressure, but I'm, I did figure it out. Um, and as I was learning to do it, I was sort of, you know, looking at the law, but also looking at the way the industry works and trying to really make it uh, work together because the law really is more written towards like major league sports, not really individual sports. So there are a lot of things there that you kind of have to tweak a little bit to make them work for track and field. And so, um, so I did that. I got my first approval with Brooks Johnson's athletes. Um, and then it just kind of went crazy from there, you know, between um, Justin moving to Dennis Mitchell's group and uh, some of his athletes coming over. So I worked with Randy Martina from that group when he was still there before he moved out of that group. I worked with um, Aaron Brown. So, you know, um, that group has been a, you know, a very close relationship that I have a lot of respect for Dennis's wife and, um, you know, that whole, um, that whole group over there. But, you know, also, you know, starting with Aaron, I started getting a lot of, a lot of, um, Canadians. And then I started getting a lot of Jamaicans cause I did one of, uh, uh, Brooks Johnson's Jamaicans. So then it just kind of blew up from there. So. Yeah, that's how I uh, I got into it. And for me, it was just, you know, it was an opportunity to put together some passions that I had, right? I've always loved sports. You don't go to an SEC school and not love sports, right? Um, I developed a passion for track and field because I had these friends that I was following around the world, watching them compete and, you know, and it became something that was really close to my heart. And I loved immigration and I could see no better way than to just marry the, those things up. And so I still have a regular immigration practice. So, you know, people still come to me for like, you know, oh, I just married somebody from France and can you please get them a green card? Um, that still is something that my firm does, but this is my sweet spot. This is my passion project. This is what I love. Um, this is what I would prefer to be doing. So, you know, my professional goal is really to, um, bring in an associate, sign up all the other stuff, pass it on to the associate attorney, and for me to really be doing just the sports stuff, because that's how much I love it. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. Well said. What a beautiful um, summary of her career. And, you know, we're going to piggyback a little bit about the University of Tennessee. Um, okay. I know that I met Mr. Gary Kakaya. Yep. Um, you know, um, I know he probably was going to school during yep. the same time mm -hmm. um was a very awesome athlete and um, i'm pretty sure that um he he somewhat um you know probably went through a similar process or take a different route you know um, I'm, I'm not sure of, of what he did but just want to talk so tell us just a little bit about um how how was it um going to college in the university of tennessee um you know what just give us a little summary. What is it like to, to, to for a law student? Um, I never actually met a law person that studied law and talked a little bit about uh, their background. So in terms of going to the university, um, what were some of the, um, the, 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 the challenges that, that, you know, that someone that's looking to get into law or what? Oh, oh, tell us a little bit about going to the, the, the studying law. Okay, so Tennessee first, because Tennessee is undergrad. I didn't do my law degree there. I did my law degree at Berkeley. But I do know Gary Kakaya, 
And I love Gary. Um, Gary was like mine and Justin's little surrogate son when he first came to Tennessee because he was very lost. And he was moved into the building where Justin lived and he was assigned to be Justin's roommate, actually. Um, and I was a, an RA in that same dorm. So uh, he was, you know, he was always wandering around, like kind of looking a bit lost, but he was very nice. And, um, and you know, and I would just kind of help orient him a little bit. I know Justin did a lot for him as well. So I remember Gary very well. I don't know actually how he legalized, um, but, you know, but he's obviously here. And I, I think the last time I spoke to him, he was in the, uh, in the Atlanta area. But um, yeah, but he was definitely, I think my first experience with somebody um, at Tennessee who was an international student and actually, and Gary was a little bit older than us too. So, um, you know, I think he was in his, I think he was almost like 24 when he came up, if I remember correctly. And Justin and I were like maybe 20 at the time. So Gary was quite a bit older than us. So he was like mature. He kept us grounded, you know, um, but but Gary's a great guy. And I really enjoyed knowing him and, and actually really enjoyed reconnecting with him recently. So that was um, that was very nice. But um, as far as going to the University of Tennessee, I mean, for me, look, um, the first thing that I can tell you about going to Tennessee was just how much it moved me, it changed me, it really set me on a path um, because I came, you know, I'm an immigrant from Russia, but I grew up in a very rural county in Tennessee that is very close-minded, right? So my family was not, but everything surrounding me was kind of, you know, limited, I will say. Um, there was no racial diversity, there was no real diversity of thought. And so, you know, me going to the University of Tennessee was really my time to flourish, my time to kind of uh, find my identity, find the people that really made me feel at home, the people that were going to inspire me, to move me to the next level. I'd always been ambitious, um, you know, so I knew before I went to Tennessee that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, and I kind of had my sights set pretty high as far as like an elite law school. So for me, Tennessee was kind of an opportunity to actually have a little bit of fun before I was going to the serious institution. Um, but, but I will say that it was a fantastic platform. So I had a little bit of, um, I guess, an inferiority complex when I went to Berkeley, because when I uh, started my law school there, and this was at, you know, at the time, I think it was ranked as like the number six or seven law school in the country. Um, and so all these people that were in my incoming class were like people who went to undergrad at Harvard, at Yale, at Stanford, you know, they had these really impressive academic backgrounds and I came from the University of Tennessee. So to me, it was just wild and I really felt out of place, but to give credit to my alma mater, I was very well prepared. Um, you know, it took me a little bit of time to get that chip off of my shoulder and, and to like emotionally settle in. But once I did that, I really feel like Tennessee academically did a great job in preparing me. So, I, you know, all my credit as far as everything that I've been able to accomplish, I always say Tennessee was the foundation. It was my stepping stone. It was the place that formed me as an adult. Um, it was the place that inspired me to do everything that I've done since then. So um, lots and lots of credit to Tennessee. As far as law school, I think law school is a very different experience because you know, if you've ever talked to me um, personally and you hear me talk about my universities, my alma maters, I have both of my degrees are on my wall, right? They're just sitting right, right up here in front of me. But 
I don't speak about Berkeley with the same passion because it was just not, um, it wasn't as much of an influence on who I was. For me, Berkeley, when you go to grad school and maybe like other people's experience is different, but this was mine, right? I went on a campus to a particular building every day to study law, right? I did not feel that sense of connection to the actual university. Like I didn't feel a part of the community in the way that I felt at Tennessee. So I, you know, I felt part of the law school community, but not a part of the larger University of California, Berkeley community. So it was a different experience because I just didn't have that level of passion about the whole thing, right? I was never able to like get into their um, athletics in the same way. I was never able to get into the school pride in the same way. You know, I'm proud to be a, a graduate of the law school, but I don't have that like thing about Cal being, you know, um, as important to me as Tennessee is, I guess. All right. All right. Uh, thank you for, for another, um, you know, interested story about, um, you know, your different, your progress in your life. So before we go over to Ian, so let me ask you something. Why did you choose University of Tennessee uh, at the time? And, and what did you actually studied? What did you want to, you know, you did you study early on or what was in your mind before mm -hmm. you decided to go to law school? So I chose Tennessee because I went to high school in Tennessee and I was very connected to my family. I was a little bit afraid of going out far, but also because there was this, um, you know, like I said, the place that I went to high school was not a place where people went to college. So when I went to my guidance counselor about applying for college, she was like, well, that's right, nice, but you're a pretty girl. Maybe you go to community college. Somebody gonna get you picked up and get you married and then you don't have to worry about going to school. I don't know if you can get into the University of Tennessee. And I was like, I had a 4.0 and you know, like a 99th percentile ACT, but you know, I didn't have the support system to push me anywhere else. So even, you know, based on what she told me, I thought that even Tennessee was a stretch. So I applied to Tennessee because it was close to home because I thought I could get in. I got in and, you know, and the rest is history, so to speak. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Over to you, Mr. Ian Thomas. Okay. Senia, um, quick question for you. As we know, it's all about educating um, our viewers also. Yeah. So a uh, quick scenario. Say I have a child who is interested in law, you know? Mm -hmm. They're going, just graduated from high school. We mm -hmm. know to become a lawyer and a doctor, it takes a few years from what I heard. Yeah. But um, could you tell us like the prerequisite that you would recommend, uh, you know, if you could guide them along to make this journey as short as possible? Um, sure. Could you yeah. just kind of walk us through the prerequirements and how long it takes to complete a course if you basically have the right guidance? Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., um, a law degree is a graduate degree. So before you can even go to law school, you have to complete a bachelor's, okay? And the bachelor's, unlike, so when you go to medical school, they want you to take certain prerequisites for your bachelor's. Law school is different. You actually don't have to study in a particular field um, at the undergraduate level to get into law school. There's no such requirement. However, um, what I would say is for people who are thinking about going to law school, what you really want to focus on is, um, you know, majors that are um, critical thinking intensive, 
Um, so studying logic, studying critical thinking, and this is, you know, this is counterintuitive, but actually um, some of the best law students are people who came from a science background because they think more critically, they think more mechanically. Um, the other thing that helps, I think that's really important, is taking write writing intensive courses. So I actually did a program at Tennessee that's a, a program modeled after something that they started at Yale. It's kind of like an independent major, but it's basically like you create your own thing and you present it to a committee and if they accept it, then you get to uh, select courses from the catalog that's sort of a la carte but then you have to do an undergraduate thesis and you have to maintain a 3.8 GPA. So my story is very different, but what I would say to somebody that wants to go to law school is, you know, um, make sure you're taking writing intensive courses, make sure you're doing critical thinking, make sure that you actually take a logic course. There, um, most universities just offer a course in logic. And um, one of the things that I see now as a potential employer, right, is a lot of these younger kids that are coming through are not well trained in writing and in critical thinking. <clears throat> and I actually find it really um, a disservice to students when you have a class, for example, I don't know, an engineering class or some other type of class that's not necessarily an English class where they don't take points off for writing badly, right? Um, because we have a generation of children who cannot write and and that's tragic and that will affect their prospects and employment especially in law because one of the things that is most important in in law is writing 90 percent of what i do is reading and writing so people have this glamorized idea about what it is to be a lawyer right you go into courtrooms and you wear nice suits and you argue a lot and that's actually not what it is. Like literally 90% of what I do is read and write. So if that doesn't appeal to you, you probably don't want to think about law school at all. But at the undergraduate level, take some, um, you know, some critical thinking intensive courses, take some writing intensive courses, keep your GPA up, um, study for the LSAT early. The LSAT is the test that you have to take before you can be admitted to law school. Um, although I know that during the pandemic, some law schools are now waiving it. So there's some modifications and look, I'm, I'm pretty old. I, I started law school in 2004. So, um, you know, so things have probably changed somewhat since then. But I would say foundationally writing, logical thinking, critical thinking, those are the things that are really, really important. Um, and then, you know, once they're ready to apply, apply to a few reach schools, apply to a few target schools, apply to a few safeties. I mean, I think that's kind of standard advice when it comes to applying to college anyway. So did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, it, it did. And with that, I, I really want to ask a question because it's like, you know, you were saying that there's not, you know, a prerequisite that you have to take. So my question to you is, why do you think that we don't have more athletes who know the challenge that they go through as sportsmen and women to actually get a visa or a green card? Have more of them going into law because that would be like along their passion. This is something that they've been doing for years. I think they, they need some education on this in terms of becoming a lawyer. You see, they leave, they get into coaching and so forth, which is along their passion, but very few you see as a lawyer, which I don't know one. <laughs> Well, I think the reason why is because what I do is really, really niche, right? There, um, 
even in immigration, right? There are only a handful of attorneys nationally who focus on sports visas, right? Um, I would say that among the people that are sort of, you know, nationally recognized names, there are probably 10, maybe 15 of us, right? And everybody kind of has their own little niche, right? So I have a friend who, uh, who does a lot of golfers. I have a friend who does MMA fighters. I have another friend who does a lot of baseball visas. And so, you know, even within our field, right? So there are over 15,000 licensed immigration attorneys in the country. Like I said, there are only maybe a dozen or so of us that focus um, exclusively or primarily on sports. So actually, to your point, one of the things that I have made a passion project of mine is to share this career with other people, because I completely agree with you, Ian. I think more people need to get in. I would love to hire eventually, um, you know, an athlete who went to law school, who can come work for me, who understands the way that sports work. Because one of the challenges that I have with my staff is that, you know, they're tr I'm training them in the law, but, you know, training them to think about how sports are structured and how the politics of sports works, uh, how the hierarchy of sports works, how certain scoring and certain sports works. That's a little bit challenging for somebody who doesn't have that background, right? Who who doesn't follow it as a passion, who's never been an athlete themselves. It's just a difficult frame of mind to shift into. So I am completely with you. I think more athletes should absolutely consider going to law school, should consider getting their law degree and should consider becoming um, sports lawyers and becoming agents. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I see actually in track and field is a lot of the agents aren't attorneys. And I have seen, you know, a lot of contracts over the years um, that, you know, that I have been provided for uh, for my athletes visa applications. And a lot of them are terrifying. Like the stuff that some of these agents let people sign is terrifying because, you know, it's not negotiated. And I understand that, you know, the shoe companies have a lot of bargaining power and they're, you know, that's obviously a factor, right? But, um, but I also feel like sometimes people don't know what they're signing. And so just having more people in the industry who are educated attorneys and licensed attorneys um, I think would be tremendously helpful. So I'm all for it. Um, I love it. And, um, you know, as a means to kind of uh, to push that um, that career opportunity out to at least existing immigration attorneys, I actually founded a uh, an organization, Sports Immigration Lawyers, and we have about 500 members right now. Um, so people, it's primarily made up of people who are learning, who are interested in becoming sports immigration lawyers, who are kind of dabbling in it, but not doing it full time. Um, but it's a platform for me to educate them. And I actually host an annual continuing legal education conference for immigration attorneys where all we talk about is sports visas. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm with you 100%. Okay, good. Uh, thank you for really sharing and, and going so much in depth with that. Because, uh, you know, that, it would be definitely good to have some athletes who, you know, represent and know the challenges so with that i'm gonna go to another question say you yep. know more like a scenario um yep. from jamaica um into athletics you know high school coming up and i know i want to take my career path overseas you know you know mm -hmm. to complete you know my field you know so when would you say would be a good time for an athlete like that who is not from the u.s you know say jamaica trinidad and tobago in you know, a local style or yeah. say a third world country 
when will yeah. be the, 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 the best time for them to seek out an immigration lawyer? So the best time would probably be right around the time that they're pretty much done with their college career, right? So give yourself obviously time. Don't contact an immigration lawyer when you're two weeks away from graduation and your student visa is about to expire and you don't know what to do with yourself, right? Um, you know, you want to get that immigration advice uh, early on. So I would say probably if, you know, if you're not going to go to your senior year, then get it, you know, six months before you plan to be done. Uh, you know, if you're signing a shoe contract early or whatever. So, um, so I would say, you know, like I said, about six months out is definitely a good time to at least have an initial conversation to understand what your options are. Uh, oftentimes, if they're going with the major shoe companies, the agents, um, you know, or the shoe companies will push them in the direction of getting immigration advice and that's good. But what I see that's kind of a pitfall that I see pretty frequently is there's something called OPT, which is a program for somebody who went to college here, right? To complete a, an optional sort of training period, right? To get a job within their field of study. And it's, um, you know, and a lot of times what I'm seeing is like, we have athletes who went to college here and let's say they studied marketing, right? Um, and then they get their OPT for 12 months after graduation. So they're technically able to be here. Now they can train on OPT, nothing says they can't train on OPT, but their work on OPT is supposed to be within their field of study, which is marketing, right? And so what I often see is somebody, like I talked to an athlete a couple of weeks ago, this wasn't a track and field athlete, but I talked to an athlete who reached out to me and I think she studied communications and she was coaching. Um, she was coaching for a, uh, for, um, she played tennis, she was coaching for a, uh, a country club. And I was like, you can't do that. You know, OPT does not allow you to do that. OPT is specifically designed for you to pursue work in the field that you studied in undergrad. So what she should have done is gotten that immigration advice early on, found out, can I coach on OPT? No, you cannot. Um, you might be able to if, you know, if your major was physical education, perhaps, right? Or maybe sports management or something like that. But if you studied marketing, communications, uh, English or whatever, it's probably not gonna work out for you. So, you know, oftentimes people who contact me are already in the woods, right? They're already sort of, they've done something that is already damaging to their prospects going forward. So the earlier they get that advice and kind of, you know, explore their options, understand what steps they need to take when they get there, the better, because that's going to uh, be more, that's going to put them in a position to more likely avoid those common uh, scenarios, those common missteps that we see with kids coming out of college. All right. With that just said, um, just no, I just want to be a little bit more specific. Sure. Uh, so before applying, mm -hmm. what are some of the questions that we may need to answer you know, for ourselves before even coming to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, obviously what we want to do is we want to figure out what are the what are the students plans, right? So the, the student is about to graduate. What do they need to do in the U.S.? Because what they intend to do in the U.S. is going to inform the visa type that's going to be most appropriate for them, right? So if they want to um, train and do sort of, you know, the typical U.S. spring circuit, you know, those little college meets that people do before they go to Europe for the summer to compete. Um, that's, you know, that's something. 
if they're um, if they want to coach. Not everybody um, is going to be able to coach. Uh, to be uh, actually to be able to coach, you need to get an O visa. An O visa is a little bit of a higher standard. I think Ian wanted to get into that a little bit later, so we'll we'll return to that point. But you know, but first and foremost, you want to know what are your plans, right? Who are you going to be training with? Um, you know, how much time do you intend to spend in the U.S.? What meets are you going to be doing in the U.S.? Um, do you have a shoe contract? If you don't have a shoe contract, are there other sponsors? You know, how are you going to support yourself? Is one of the things that's really limiting about sports visas, right? Um, and particularly about the P, the O is a little bit more flexible. We can kind of get into that. Um, but they typically tie you to only being able to generate income from the sport, right? And what we know about track and field in particular um, is that it's a terribly lowly compensated sport. So a lot of these athletes are unfortunately not making a living wage, right? Um, and so the question arises, okay, so if you're not making a living wage, how are you going to prove to immigration that you're going to sustain yourself here? Because they're gonna have questions, right? If you have a contract for $10,000 a year and you're not allowed to work here, other than to make money from track, right? They're gonna have questions. How are you gonna support yourself? And sometimes there are answers to those questions, right? Like there are people who stay with family, um, you know, and, and there are people who have like private sponsors, like, oh, you know, so-and-so just pays for my room and board because they believe in me. And, and there are athletes like that. And, you know, and to the extent that there are situations like that, we work with them, but these are, you know, these are the common little situations that we have to think about. And so when I have a conversation with an athlete, I'm quizzing them about all this stuff. You know, what are your plans? How much time do you need to spend here? Who are you training with? How much do you need to travel? When is the next time you need to travel, right? What are your can't miss events, both in the US and in your home country or, you know, in some other third country? Because one of the things that I see as far as mistakes made by immigration lawyers who aren't really familiar with sports visas is they will either set it up to where the person is stuck in the U.S. at a time when they need to be outside the U.S. to compete or the other way around where they need to be in the U.S. to train with their coach, but they're stuck outside the U.S. because they can't get a visa, right? So all those things are like part of this larger strategy that we have to think about. So it's, it's very multidimensional. You know, and this is where it helps to understand the sport, right? <laughs> I'm happy that we brought you on, on tonight because uh, it seems like there's a lot of technical issues. Yeah. <laughs> and some really fine print writing. Because we know when it comes on to law, even paperwork, there's some fine prints. And I, I, I really believe a lot of athletes don't even know some of the things that you have shared thus far. You know, Absolutely. I can just imagine the amount of athletes who are here who basically working and everything but does not fulfill all of what you just said a while ago so yep. <laughs> with, with that i'm gonna pass you back over to ian but it's really a, a, a real learning situation here for me and others yeah <clears throat> all right guys you heard a lot of information um i'm just gonna try to keep it along the same path for, for, okay. for this part so let's talk about the the, the visas now let's talk mm -hmm. about the different visas so obviously um a student visa um you know the, and a visiting visa are typically i'm assuming is the two visa that um for someone that's already in the u.s now 
how difficult it is the process if you're not in the US and you want to apply for this um this the, 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 to come here to train say for instance someone is training in in in, in Bahamas or um St Vincent or Jamaica mm -hmm. and they're very talented is it more difficult being outside the US <laughs> Well, okay, normally no, right? But we live in the times of COVID, right? So in the times of COVID, yes. Because one of the things that happened last year is between March and June, all of the consular posts, all the US embassies and all the different countries in the world were pretty much shut down because of COVID, right? They weren't issuing any kind of visas whatsoever. Since June, most embassies have reopened, but what they're doing is they're working on a limited capacity. Um, they don't have their full staff. And so even though sports visas, so your O's, your P's, uh, your B's are not specifically in the list of visas that, are, that were banned by Trump, um, they still aren't readily available because it's difficult to get an interview. It's difficult to get an actual slot to go into the embassy to get this visa. You basically have to qualify for like an emergency um, visa appointment unless you go to certain consulates that are not currently treating it as an emergency. So it's, it's messy. Um, so right now, the answer to your question is yes. Normally, no. Normally, it doesn't make that much of a difference whether you're outside the U.S. or whether you're in the U.S. As long as you are sufficiently qualified in terms of your accomplishments for the visa, you know, it's just a different mechanism is all. You know, if you're here, you can change your status. If you're not here, you go to the embassy, you get the visa, you come in. Um, you know, obviously, in both scenarios, we still have to prove that you're sufficiently extraordinary, but it's still, you know, it, it's it's just a different different way of doing it. Um, so, but right now, yes, it's challenging okay. to bring people so, in. Okay, so typically, um, you know, just you know, we're we we know that COVID kind of um, changed a lot of things, but yeah. um, but obviously, uh, how would it take longer? Um, if you're outside the U.S. compared to inside the U.S. in terms of the process, should it? Um, it will take a little bit longer, but like, let's just kind of move back to the pre-COVID times, right? So basically, um, when you are filing in the U.S., the process during which they establish whether you're extraordinary enough and change your status, that runs simultaneously. The difference for somebody who's outside the U.S. is they go through that process, too. So they have to file an extraordinary ability petition, right? And the petition is that whole packet of documents that establishes that the person is sufficiently extraordinary to get the visa classification. If immigration agrees that, yes, he is sufficiently accomplished, then that person can take that approval notice and sign up for a visa interview in their home country, right? Or whatever country they happen to be in. And normally, you know, we would be able to get an interview for somebody within about a couple of weeks, typically. Um, so, you know, it was longer, but not like materially so. All right. All right. Thank you for that information again. So let's, let's, um, as I said, we know that we have the student visa, we have the um, visiting visa. So, you know, so typically, um, how, how easy is the process now um, for you to change the status and how long before? We, we have talked a little bit about the student visa that yeah. you could spend um, an extra year and you could put pretty much work in your field yeah. and, and, and continue to, to train if you are yeah. athlete. Uh, so I just want to know now that um, since 
since we're here in the U.S., and um, what would be the different kind of visas for someone, um, the scenario that I want to use for someone that does not have a shoe contract, someone mm -hmm. that is pretty good, they probably finish in the top of the NCAA and they don't have a shoe contract. Yeah. Um, is there hope for that person um, to get um, a type of visa and what visa would that be? Yeah, um, so we actually, we've done quite a lot of athletes who don't have shoe contracts. Um, I've gotten them two types of visas. Um, so the visiting visa that you mentioned, I will actually want to come back to that because there's a provision of that that's really underutilized because very few people know that there's a provision of that that specifically applies for um, professional athletes. So I'm going to come back to that. But typically, um, you know, somebody who competed in NCAAs who's pretty good, right? So when we're talking about pretty good, we, you know, it's not just somebody that's like, you know, winning at the conference level, it's somebody that's winning at the national level. Um, so somebody who is, um, you know, who is looking like they might be in the, um, you know, in the Olympics. next world championships, uh, somebody who has sufficient potential, right? I mean, I will say, I will temper that. So it doesn't have to be an Olympic caliber athlete. Um, you know, I, I've gotten P visas for, for people who have done some international competition, not phenomenal results, but, you know, but at least competed internationally as a part of their national team, right? So they were good enough to make their national team. They were good enough to go to a few international competitions, you know, things like NACAC, things like Commonwealth, um, you know, Pan American Games. Some of that stuff at the junior level, we've been able to use junior level accomplishments for that. Um, we talk about NCAAs because obviously in track and field, and you know, and that's not true in all sports, but in track and field in particular, NCAA competition is actually a really high level of competition because it's so many NCAA athletes who go on to um, be very competitive at both worlds and at, um, at the Olympics. So we talk about that, but for somebody who's transitioning out of college, um, what I like to do is do the P visa. Okay, so this is kind of what I like to call sort of the entry level sports visa, right? So um, it's typically going to be available to somebody who did NCAAs here, um, although that's not necessary. So I'm just, you know, you gave me the profile of somebody who went to NCAA. So we, we will use that towards the visa because it's one of the criteria that they will credit you towards getting the visa if you did compete in, um, in U.S. Uh, colleges here in the U.S., so um, and you know that can be Division One, Division Two. It doesn't really matter. Um, so we'll use that, and then the international competitions. So you know, if I'm looking at somebody who is, you know, who's just kind of okay, right? Who maybe conference level they're doing something, but they've never been part of the national team. They've never been top three. Um, you know, junior or senior, they've never been anywhere internationally. I'm kind of like, mm, you know, it's a little bit tricky. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten visas that were sort of, you know, for people who were starting out for cases that I thought were pretty challenging. Um, and, you know, and a lot of it really depends on the luck and the adjudicator. So one of the things you kind of asked me about is how difficult is it now? And this is kind of a good frame of reference to talk about that because the last four years have been insane, have been absolutely insane. Um, I've been practicing law for 13 years and the last four years uh, collectively were the worst of my entire career. Um, and the reason why is because we have seen 
um, you know, this restrictionist immigration agenda of the prior administration really tri uh, trickled down to the adjudications level. And what we were seeing was that they were looking for any reason whatsoever to deny, deny people who were eminently qualified for the classification. So, you know, so immigration was like throwing things out there, like saying ESPN is not a major network. And I was like, what? It's the number one network, sports network in the world. Are you people crazy? Like what rock do you live under, right? But they would challenge stuff like that. Like I'm literally in the process right now. And this is my, I, I'm so outraged by this. Um, this is the first green card denial of my career. This kid is a track and field athlete who was ranked in the top 10 in the world. He was in the finals in Doha. Um, he didn't place, but he was in the finals. And um, and they told him no on a green card and it's outrageous and I'm suing them in federal court right now and I'm going to win. So, um, you know, but this is the kind of stuff that we've seen over the last few years. So those cases that were more borderline, um, I was much more successful with those cases before. Now, I think that there's going to be an attitude shift under the Biden administration where those borderline cases are going to come into play and I'm going to be more successful with them. But just to kind of give you a statistical rundown, I did a, um, a collaboration with the Wall Street Journal in the fall of 2019. We looked at the statistics. Um, and so we looked at the collective agency statistics, right? So this is the um, entire set of statistics that USCIS, which is our immigration agency, used to publish about different types of green cards that they would give out, right? And so if you looked at the category for extraordinary ability green cards, which is what we, uh, we apply for for our athletes, the, um, the category prior to Trump taking office had a steady approval rate in the high 80s to low 90s. Okay, so varied between about 87 to 92% under all prior administrations that we have records for, including prior Republican administrations, so under Bush, et cetera, right? Under Trump, by the third quarter of 2019, which is the last set of statistics that they released, and this is the statistic that we were working off of with this um, journalist from the Wall Street Journal that we collaborated on this article, they were down to like 53%. Hmm. So they went down exponentially. And, um, you know, and so they were giving many more requests for evidence. A person who had a request for evidence was about two thirds likely to get their case denied. It just, it got, it got crazy. It, it got banana republic. So I'm, I'm really hopeful um, as are, I think all immigration lawyers that the attitude is going to change with the current administration. I mean, I think it's certainly, um, inspiring that they um, the first bill that they introduced um, you know on the first day that Biden was sworn in was an immigration reform bill so it looks like this is going to be an issue that is important to this administration and um, you know and it's a um, it's a pro-immigrant administration which um, which I think is great because I think you know all of us here are just um, you know living proof that America is is great because of immigrants right? That, that, you know, we are the melting pot. Um, there are very few people here who are native to the U.S. Um, you know, the rest of us came here at some point or another. And, um, you know, and for me, it's a tremendous honor to work with the best and the brightest to kind of contribute to the melting pot in that way. But, um, but yeah, sorry, sorry, Ian, I kind of went no, off. No, 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 no
we we just want to thank all the viewers that's on here uh, on the platform now and i said guys if you if you have a question please type it we'll we'll try to get to it um you know if you got a specific question that you like to ask as i said just want to put that out there so my next question is um how difficult it is in terms of um a person that's from a different nationality do you believe that some nationalities are easier to get uh, a P visa or um, uh, um, or a visa to, to stay and train or is, would you say that it's so it's difficult or about the same? I think generally it's about the same. I mean, I always get this question from Russians because of all the Russia stuff that's going on and I'm Russian by heritage. Um, but I haven't seen I haven't seen the bias, you know, on a national level trickle down like that. Um, you know, I think they're looking at accomplishments. I mean, you know, in terms of, um, I guess maybe to some extent Canadians, but just because they have special procedures because uh, they're visa exempt and it's just a little bit easier procedurally for them to get in. Um, and, and I've had a few Canadian cases that I would have considered to be borderline that I got approved. So, um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know if that was a function of them being Canadian or, you know, the officer was having a good day or we put together a really great application. Um, I mean, I think we do, but, you know. All right. So in terms of um, for someone that looking to, to, to qualify, um, mm -hmm. what are some of the areas um, other than, um, you know, the criteria to, mm -hmm. to qualify to, you know, for someone that, looking to be extraordinary um, ability in, in, in track and field or any other sport? Yeah, so um, there's definitely a game plan, right? There's, there's a game plan for all of this, right? So if you're a high school athlete, your game plan is to get into NCAAs and to do well in NCAAs, and that's gonna set you up nicely for the next level, which is the P visa, right? Um, if you're already in college, um, then you need to be trying to make it into international competitions. Um, you need to try to make your national team and go to some of those important competitions. Um, if you're already in the U.S. on a P visa or an O visa and you're looking to go next step to the green card, then, you know, you really you need good media, um, which you're going to get because obviously uh, track and field is a sport that gets great media coverage. Um, so, you know, if you're out there at Worlds, if you're, you know, if you're at World Relays, if you're. Uh, doing well at some of the um, Diamond League meets, you're going to get press. So there's no need to sort of, you know, go out there and really push that as an agenda. I mean, I think it just happens organically. And that's sort of the point, right? Um, but I would just say that, you know, for people who are um, who are a little bit more borderline, I would say that, you know, you want to make sure that you are out there, um, that you're getting press. Um, you know, that you're getting major press, good quality press. Um, so that's going to be, you know, your um, newspapers or, um, you know, major media with a national circulation or an international circulation. Those are going to be helpful to you. Um, I would say that in terms of um, awards, you know, again, you want to be gunning for your best results, right? You want to be gunning for your best rankings. Um, you know, one of the one of the um, advantages that I have as somebody who actually understands track and field is all I need from you to find out if you qualify and what you qualify for is generally your name. 
and I'm going to go in world athletics and figure it out. I'm going to be able to tell you in about five minutes. Um, okay, but, okay, okay, okay. So yeah. that's what, that was going to be my next question. How important it is to actually choose somebody to, to, to do this process that's understanding the sport. Because um, so how, how important to think that is? Like, um, look, um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real with you. There there are two types of people, right? Um, yeah. There are there are people who are eminently qualified, right? So like, let's take you sample, okay? I didn't, for the record, not mine, right? But um, I'm I imagine he's got his green card, right? But let's say you sample came to me and said, Xenia, I want to do a green card. Okay. Usain Bolt can get a green card without me, right? Because that many Olympic medals, you're good, right? Um, you know, where you might need a lawyer if you have that many Olympic medals is if you also have, you know, some uh, prior immigration violations, if you have some arrests um, that may, you know, and look, even minor arrests can affect things. So, if, you know, if you've got any arrests anywhere in the world, you need to talk to a lawyer, period. Um, so that's going to be regardless of how many medals you have, you need to go look um, at getting advice. Okay. And it may be that the lawyer is going to tell you, no, you're fine. You're not inadmissible based on what you have, but you want to make sure you get that worked out first. Okay. So, you know, but at the same time, I bet whoever Usain Bolt used, I bet he used a lawyer. And the reason why I bet he did it is because Usain Bolt does not have the time to go on USCIS.gov to read the instructions and to figure out how to put something together that looks a lot like this, which is, <laughs> this is a thin version of what we do, okay? Yes. This is a fairly thin case. So, you know, so for people like that who are eminently qualified, it's just a matter of, you know, I don't wanna deal with this. I'm gonna pay you so that it's your headache and not mine, right? Um, and then there are people who are, um, you know, who are those borderline cases that I mentioned, right? People who, um, who probably need a little bit more explanation, a little bit more massaging, somebody who understands the sport in a way that, um, you know, can frame it, frame the application in a way that's really um, advantageous to them. And what I mean by that is like little things, right? So um you know what immigration doesn't understand in terms of the sport are things that we can often use to the advantage of the athlete right and i hope that there are no immigration officers watching this or i'm gonna i'm gonna totally blow my uh my little secrets but you know one of the things i like to do is um you know some athletes look if you um, if you're going for a green card, right, and you don't think that you have the ability to medal at Worlds, right, at, and I'm talking about at outdoors, then you need to think about doing an indoor season and getting a Worlds indoor medal, right? And as folks who are familiar with the sport, you know, most people would agree that getting an indoor medal is a little easier than getting an outdoor medal, right? Um, <laughs> they don't understand the difference, okay? So that's something that we can use to our advantage, okay? Things like World Relays. I mean, World Relays is a really fun event, right? Um, but where is it, where does it sit in the hierarchy of, you know, really prestigious and really elite events in track and field? You know, it, it's fun, right? But I don't know that World Relays is up there with the World Championship, but it has world in it and it sounds fancy. So, you know, we can kind of frame it that way. Oh man, um, I'm 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 loving this because I like your um 
you know, how you word things and how you look at it because it's so important knowing that obviously the world championship and the world relays are on a different level. But the people that are going to assess this thing here, they, they're going to see the world athletics, indoor mm -hmm. athletics. And uh, yes. th that would be something that they would say, well, you know, it's the best in the world. So, yep. <laughs> you know, and, and the world relay winning a medal, mm -hmm. you know, could simply win. So in terms of for somebody, like if someone, you know, are in the early stage uh, and they will love to consultate um, just to figure out how to strategically mm -hmm. prepare themselves. How would they find that information and what, what would be the process? So um, I often post stuff on my social media. So you can follow me on Instagram um, at Sports Visa Lawyer. I have a funny name, so most people don't know my name. Most people can't pronounce my name, but they know the Sports Visa Lawyer and I actually got that trademark. So that's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, follow me at Sports Visa Lawyer on Instagram, um, same handle on Facebook. I post information there, but um, one of the things that I want to do over the course of the next year is I think, you know, what you brought up is really important is to start sort of doing a little bit more public engagement in terms of talking to athletes about, okay, how do you get on course, right? If you are, so like doing something like this, you know, doing a little webinar for, you know, college athletes who are interested in eventually taking the next steps, what's it going to take for you? What do you need to prepare? What do you need to think about? as you contemplate these next steps in your career or somebody who's a p you know or an o and they're considering going to the next step of their green card is one of the things i ask my athletes you know and for a lot of like the high high earners you have to ask do you want a green card right because i have a couple athletes from europe who are like no i don't want the green card because what do you get when you get the green card you become a u.s tax resident which means that they tax you on your worldwide income in the US, which may be bad financial news for you, okay? So if you're making a lot of money and a lot of that uh, money is sourced from outside the US and you don't wanna pay tax on it in the US, then it may not be a great idea for you to become a US tax resident, you know? And, and of course, like, if you're still interested in getting the green card because just because that's what you wanna do, um, you know, there are tax advisors that I work with that can help you do pre-immigration tax planning, to see how you can optimize your tax position using different tax treaties that are in place between your country of origin and the US. So, you know, it's not necessarily going to be, uh, you know, a tragic situation, but it's something to consider, you know, and these are all things that, you know, these are the, the things outside of like, you know, can you go on USCIS.gov and read the instructions? Yes, you can. But this is the stuff that nobody, you know, talks about, right? The, these are the dimensions of the case that we think about that, you know, most people don't. Okay. All, right. All right. Awesome. So, guys, um, very interesting story, very interesting uh, information. So let, let's um, I know for some of the listeners that don't understand these letters with the visas and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> can we just break down the different uh, first uh, for a student that look into um, possibly stay and train? The scenario is, is if they have a visiting visa. Uh, together with uh, a student visa, um, how would they, the logistics of that work mm -hmm. um, to pretty much change that status um, and stay on the other visa that since the other one is expired? Okay, 
So you can have two visas in your passport, but there's a difference between visa and status. And this is one of those things that's a little bit wonky that a lot of people don't understand, okay? So you can have a student visa in your passport and at the same time have a tourist visa on your passport. But when you cross the border, you are admitted as either a visitor or a student, right? So that visa in your passport, you know, you can't you're you can't be two things at the same time, basically, is how that works. Okay. So when you enter, if you have several valid visas, they'll enter you as one or the other. So if you're a student, our assumption is that you have an F visa, which is the student visa. Okay. Now that I'm glad you brought up the uh, the visitors visa, the B1, B2. Okay, because this is one of the visas that doesn't get enough play. And it's actually a good visa option for perhaps for somebody who's not yet at the level that they need to be to qualify for the P visa or the O visa or the extraordinary ability green card. Okay, now the B1, B2 visa, if you have one, you'll open your passport and you will see it says B1 slash B2. Okay, the reason why it says that is because the B1 and B2 have different purposes. Okay, so the B1 is typically considered a visitor for business and the B2 is typically considered a visitor for pleasure. Okay, now the visitor for business has all these different subclassifications of different things you can do as a visitor for business. And one of those classifications is as a B1 athlete. Okay, so that B1 athlete is somebody who is coming to the US solely for the purpose of competing in an event where the only kind of compensation that they're getting is prize money. Okay, so if you don't have a shoe contract and all you're doing is coming in for like Penn Relays or Drake or something, you know, um, or Florida Relays, whatever, um, you can come in on a B1, B2 visa. And as long as you are getting no other compensation other than prize money, if you win prize money somewhere, right? You can be here and you know, the, the limitation is obviously that on a B1, B2, the maximum period of stay is six months, but you know, but it gives you some options if you're not quite there yet, right? right. So, um, so I like that visa option. I use it for some, for some people who are like, you know, I need to be here very quickly and then you know then we need to figure out you know gather all the information for going to the next step that works too we have some people who are coming in on a b1 starting out on a b1 and then we change them to a p later um you know when they get like their contract or you know when uh, they get certain accomplishments so that's definitely an option um and i really like the b1 visa for people who are kind of not quite there yet don't, um, you know, don't neglect to look into the B1 visa. The B1 visa is very good. Um, and it's the great thing about the B1 visa is you don't need the sports visa lawyer or any other lawyer to get it. You know, uh, you just go to the embassy, fill out the DS-160, sign yourself up for an interview and you can come in. And if you have a B1, B2 visa, what you need to make sure is that by default, most of the time they'll stamp you in as a B2, right? So at the border, you need to tell them I'm a B1 professional athlete and they'll stamp you in in the right um, in the right uh, classification. Okay. So um, thank you again for that. So just for some of the, the viewers again, so the B1, B, B2 visa, what's the length of time? Can you stay with that visa typically? Um, the maximum length of stay on that is six months. Okay. So and, six, go ahead. 
Oh, sorry. And and so, you know, you you can't really use it to like, you know, stay here for six months, leave for two days, come back and stay for another six months. You're going to start having problems, right? They're going to start saying, look, you're, you're using your B1, B2 visa to basically live in the US. That's not what it's designed to, you know, to do because it's what we call a non-immigrant visa. A non-immigrant visa requires you to have non-immigrant intent. So if you start spending too much time in the US on a B1, B2 visa, they're going to start asking questions, right? So, you know, the B1, B2 visa is kind of a stopgap measure, right? It's it's a short-term solution and you need to have a plan to get yourself into something that's more long-term, um, you know? So it's, it's definitely something that, you know, that we can use as a tool, but it's probably not your long-term go-to solution. All right, awesome. So the B1, B2, you know, a visiting visa, guys, um, for, for someone that's coming here, um, for someone now that's coming, say, for instance, they're coming to train for the Olympics and yep. they, they plan to stay two or three months. Um, what would they need to do, say, for instance, when they come in and they're talking to an immigration officer? Do they need to have um, documents and letter where they're going? Uh, what would, would be advice for that? Are you talking about coming in on the B1, B2? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so basically I would say that they would want to obviously indicate to the immigration officer that they're coming in as a as an athlete, right? So they need to be stamped in as a B1. I typically send my clients with a um, with a link to the um, the regulation that basically sets out this classification for athletes. And um, if you want, I can send it to you after the podcast and you can drop yeah. it in the comments or something. Um, but I typically send my clients with that and uh, because actually a lot of immigration officers don't even know about it. So, um, so it's, it's kind of good to educate them as well and make sure that the athlete gets stamped in. So they'll get stamped in for, you know, for their up to six months. Typically, you know, you don't need things like, you know, a letter from your coach or anything like that. Um, you know, I have utilized letters from coaches or letters from training partners in certain situations, but not in like a standard situation. Um, I've done it in situations where, you know, uh, where the person's status was a little bit wonky. I, I don't want to get into it, it's very technical, but um, but yeah, but not typically. I mean, typically it's just sufficient to say, hey, look, I'm an athlete, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting paid, I'm, I don't have a contract, I'm just coming in, you know, to train and, um, you know, and, the most that I would ever collect here is prize money. Um, they may ask, you know, well, how do you plan on supporting yourself? And it's always good, um, you know, anytime you're coming in on any kind of visa, it's always a good idea to at least have access to information on how you plan on supporting yourself in the US. All right, well said. I'm gonna turn it over back to Ian and um, and we'll get into a little bit more about the, um, the next visa, which is um, allow you, if you have, you know, if you want to move on to the next step, <laughs> yeah. you know, that would be over to you, Ian. All right. Um, quick question here. Um, apart from like an athlete accomplishment, you know, that will speak for him or her in terms of, you know, determining, you know, getting that visa. What are like necessary documents that someone may have to present to you um, to, to aid in that um, process, the application mm -hmm. process? So typically, the only things I'm asking uh, my athletes for are things like their birth certificate, their passport, um, their visa pages, right? Or if they've got like derivative children or derivative spouses, then the um, civil documents showing the relationship between those people. 
um, you know, so marriage certificate if you're bringing a spouse, a child's birth certificate if you're bringing a child, because all these visas, except for the B1, have derivative status. So they allow you to bring your family members with you if you come, right? So typically that's all I'm asking for my athletes. Now, if you're working with somebody who, again, doesn't know your sport, they're gonna be telling you, okay, I need you to provide me evidence of these awards, blah, blah. You know, my paralegals and I, um, you know, know that World Athletics website back and forth. So we will pull all the, you know, all the final results from there. Um, you know, I don't ask my athletes to give me any media. We find all the media ourselves. We find all the results ourselves. Um, so that's something that we do. We ask for a shoe contract. If you have a shoe contract now, a lot of athletes, you know, who are doing this for the first time are like, oh, the shoe contract's confidential. You know, I'm not supposed to disclose it. And then I tell them, go back, talk to your agent, talk to your point of contact at the shoe company because they know this, they know this is required. So I know that Nike's aware, Adidas is aware, you know, New Balance, all those guys are aware. And, um, you know, what people need to understand um, and, and this is, I guess, you know, sort of a point of concern for some people who are very private about their affairs. They don't obviously want people to know how much they're making. So the shoe, the shoe contract is something they want to keep confidential. And they also don't want people to know that they're applying for, you know, a U.S. visa or U.S. green card. And so, you know, what I would say to those people is the proceeding is entirely confidential. So the only people that ever see what you have submitted are me and the person who's deciding the case. And nobody can like, you know, do a Freedom of Information Act request. You know, if they know that Usain Bolt got his visa or his green card and submitted his contract, they can't do a Freedom of Information Act request to get Usain Bolt's contracts. It's, you know, it wouldn't be accessible to them. Um, only Usain Bolt could ask for his own contracts or his own copies of records from immigration. So, um, so you know, the confidentiality concerns, I think, you know, are typically something that, that we can get people to get over. Um, the other thing that we need, and this is something that I will do for my clients, is we will need a contract between the um, entity or the person that's serving as the petitioner on the case and um, the contract and the person who is actually the beneficiary of the visa, right? And there are all kinds of scenarios, right? So there's direct petitions. So like Nike may want to directly petition as an employer for one of its athletes. I know they do that. Um, so that would be in that case, you know, it's a, you know, the, the shoe contract is sufficient. In most cases, um, most other companies do not petition for their uh, athletes because typically in order to petition for the athlete, you have to be a U.S. company, right? And so, you know, Puma is a, um, is, I think is a BVI company, um, you know, so all my Caribbean athletes that have Puma contracts, Puma can't even sponsor them directly because they're not a U.S. company. They're not a U.S. based company. So typically for my track and field athletes, the, um, the person that ends up being the visa sponsor, the visa petitioner is the coach. Um, so the head of the training group where they train. And, you know, and this also takes some education with the coaches that haven't done it before, um, you know, because obviously they might be concerned that they have financial liabilities, that they have liabilities if the athlete like, goes out and commits crimes or anything like that. Um, you know, we explain to them that that's not the case. They are liable for, you know, receiving um, documents from immigration on behalf of the athletes and their financial liability is only for the cost of the athlete's return ticket if they don't leave at the end of their stay. And there are ways that we can kind of structure that to protect the coach or whoever's the petitioner from even, you know, carrying that liability. So, 
Um, so that would be, you know, that would be something that we structure and then we give them to sign, to review and sign. And I do like a very simple non-legalese three-page agreement um, that everybody can read and understand without having any sort of, you know, um, legal knowledge or, um, you know, need to have it reviewed by legal counsel. Of course they can if they need to, but, um, but yeah, so those are the, the kinds of things we're looking for from them. Um, you know, when, when it comes to other sports, um, if there's, you know, there are certain sports that don't have, um, you know, and, and the, to credit World Athletics, like World Athletics has an amazing database, um, you know, for, uh, for all of the work that they do to make sure that those historical records, historical, um, you know, time sheets, final results are all out there. Um, it's really an incredible resource and it's not one that's available in a lot of sports. So for example, for like my figure skaters, I, I can get some stuff from public facing resources, but the International Skating Union is not nearly as good as World Athletics. So a lot of times I have to be like, okay, you guys have to try to chase down your scorecards from, you know, this particular event or this particular competition that you went to because I can't get them from ISU. Um, so you know, one of the things that, you know, that I will say about track and field is you guys are lucky because your information is out there um, and you can go back years and years and get it. And, and that makes this process um, a lot less painful for you and, and for the lawyers that you work with. Okay. All right. All right. Another question. Um, uh, you may actually touch on it before just a little. But mm -hmm. uh, based on the country that you're coming from, is the application the same or it differs based on the countries? You know, is it a standard one or it differs? Yeah, so the application is completely standard. So there's, you know, there's a standard set of criteria that you have to meet. Um, and basically, you know, where you apply will be, a, um, will be somewhat informed by your country of origin because right now, um, very few embassies are taking third country nationals. So where you get the visa will typically be in the country where you live, right? At the U.S. Embassy in the country where you live. But um, but other than that, it's it's a, you know, it's a very standardized process. It's meant to be, you know, um, equally open to people from, you know, from all nationalities. Now, you know, a, as a practical matter, there are certain challenges that we have in dealing with, um, you know, certain certain countries, uh, their national federations, things like that. Like I also do coaches, right? So we kind of been talking about athletes, but this is also available to coaches, to really anybody with extraordinary ability in athletics, which may include agents, it may include coaches, it may include commentators, it may include like physical therapists who work with um, the athletes, like massage therapists, people like that. Um, so it's really a broad field. But, um, you know, with coaches, a lot of the time, what we really are counting on certain records from that coaches federation and a lot of federations as you know are not very transparent like it's hard to get records there's you know all these political considerations so um there are countries where as a practical matter it's a little bit more difficult um i mean obviously also translation issues right so you have the advantage uh, uh if you come from jamaica of not needing to translate your documents right if you're coming from uh, you know, a country where the national language is Arabic and all the stuff that you have is in Arabic, I mean, obviously like the world athletic stuff is gonna be in English, but if your civil documents are in Arabic, you'll need to get your civil documents translated. So that you know requires a little bit more heavy lifting. But in terms of the actual criteria to qualify, it's all the same. 
Okay. Um, so we know we've been talking a lot about the visa and yep. the green and the green card in most of mm-hmm. our conversation here. Um, and we know not everybody know the difference between um these two. Uh, no, mm-hmm. having the green card versus um having the um the visa. And you yep. did talk of one advantage and and uh, no disadvantage with the taxes. But could mm-hmm. you speak more openly on the difference between these two and if there's any other um, advantage versus disadvantage between sure. these two? So a green card um, is the colloquial term for a permanent resident card, right? So it means that you have permanent residence in the U.S. That means that this is your primary place of abode. When you have a permanent place of abode, that means that you're spending most of your time here right? So the green card's not for you if your intention is to spend three months in the U.S. and be elsewhere the rest of the time, right? Um, you know, if you're traveling for for track, that's that's something else, right? But if you, you know, if you live elsewhere, right, and you're only kind of visiting here, then the green card is not for you. Green card contemplates permanent residence, right? And uh, an O visa or a P visa or a B visa those are intended for people to come to the U.S. for a particular period of time and to go back home wherever they live, right? Um, the O and the P visa are quasi-dual intent visas. I'm getting into some real, uh, you know, legalese kind of stuff. I'm not going to go really deeply into that other than to say that a person who has an O or a P can have the intention of eventually applying for the green card, and that's not a problem in the law. Um, But the other advantage of the green card is the green card, it's really a pathway towards citizenship, right? So if you just have a visa, you're not going to become a citizen unless you become a resident first, right? So you have to have, uh, if you're getting it as as an athlete, if you're getting it through extraordinary ability, you have to have a permanent resident card for at least five years before you'll be eligible to become a U.S. citizen. Okay, and and that's something that a lot of people are interested in because their um, their passports are not that good for travel um, all over the world. Like I know that I had tons of limitations when I traveled on my Russian passport before I was a U.S. citizen. I needed a visa to go everywhere. It was a nightmare. Uh, once I became a U.S. citizen, I was able to travel more freely. So a lot of people that have country that have passports from countries that require um, visas everywhere, they want the the U.S. passport. So um, so that's going to be one of the considerations there. Um, Let's see, what are some other things that we want to talk about? Um, I guess the other thing that's worth mentioning is um, I think Ian and I talked briefly about this on the phone a couple weeks ago, but I now have kind of a trend of athletes who are getting their green cards not through extraordinary ability, but through marriage okay and this is this is a thing this happens um we have a lot of athletes who have been here for years right so they've attended college here they've trained here they meet somebody who's a u.s citizen and they come to me and they say okay you know what's the best way to do this so this is a common question that i get if i'm an athlete and i can qualify as an extraordinary ability athlete for the green card but I also have, you know, a U.S. citizen fiance, which way should I do it? And so, you know, what I tell people is generally this, um, from a legal fees perspective, it is cheaper to do it um, as as somebody who is married to a U.S. citizen. So you will, it will cost you less to do it that way. The other advantage that you have 
if you do it through marriage to a U.S. citizen is you can actually get your citizenship after three years, not five years, if you have the, um, the green card as an athlete. So, um, you know, so I tend to steer my athlete clients. I always ask, is there a U.S. significant other in the picture? And have you considered this? Um, because it's generally, you know, the easier way to go because you don't have to prove how extraordinary you are. They don't care what you do. All they care about is that the relationship that is forming the basis for the green card application is real, that, you know, the foreign national hasn't paid the U.S. citizen money to, you know, to pretend like they're in love and, and to get this green card. So, um, yeah, so to the extent that there is a bona fide relationship and, um, you know, and there's an opportunity for a person to get the green card through marriage, that is generally the way to go. Even if you have the opportunity to do it as an athlete, that there are several advantages to it that are financial, that are temporal. Um, I, I generally recommend that they do that. Okay, um, so earlier, um and the little conversation with you and Ian. I know you speak of um, the administration, the different administration and how it affects the whole process. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm going to ask you personally, as a lawyer, is there any law you would love to see pass in Congress that would help this process? Yes, lots, lots, <laughs> lots, lots, lots. I love it. These are such great questions. Thank you. Um, Yes, so there are some obscure provisions in the P visa that are um, that are remnants from a uh, a draft that um, initially existed in both the P visa regulations and the O visa regulations. And the American Immigration Lawyers Association back in the day, so these uh, regs were passed like in the 90s. Um, they challenged the language in the O visa and won the challenge and got it taken out because it didn't make any sense, okay? But the language in the P visa stayed. And the language that stayed is this really obscure provision that really, again, before uh, Stephen Miller, who's the architect of Trump's immigration policy, the guy was like really um, very immigration restrictionist um, minded. Before him, this was not a regulation that they really enforced with any level of regularity. But uh, since Stephen Miller came in, he was like, oh, we can use this to deny a lot of people. Let's do it. Um, so the regulation says that a P athlete must be coming to the U.S. to participate in a competition that requires the participation of an internationally recognized athlete. Now, let's break that down, right? Because to my knowledge, and I'm not an athlete, right? You guys can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but to my yeah, knowledge... <laughs> the way that you get into a meet if there is to meet a qualification standard, right? Typically, like if you're going to Worlds or whatever, you have to meet a qualification standard, right? It's based on your performance, not on your recognition. You know, ostensibly, I could be somebody who's, you know, this brand new kid, you know, this prodigy, right? Nobody's ever heard of me. I come out here and I drop a sub 10, I'm probably going to Worlds, right? Like, that, that's probably gonna happen, even if nobody's heard of me. So it's not based on recognition, it's based on performance. And yet we have this regulation that says that they must be coming over here to participate in meets or competitions that require the participation of an internationally recognized athlete. It's bizarre, but we've been able to kind of massage it and, and get them there with arguing certain things uh, for certain types of sports, right? So. With track and field, we will typically argue that 
Things like um, USA versus the world at Penn Relays requires the participation of internationally recognized athletes because these, you know, are truly some of the best athletes from different countries competing against each other in this like historic event um, that gets a lot of press that, um, you know, has a huge audience, et cetera, et cetera. We make similar arguments for, um, you know, for, uh, for pre Obviously, we have the World Championship um, coming up in the U.S., so we'll be making those arguments for that. So, you know, there are ways that we can kind of get there. But again, you know, sometimes what I have to do in my job is absurd. Like, you know, one of the absurdities is that I actually have to documentarily prove that ESPN is a major network. That is insane. Okay, (laughs) that is literally insane. But it happens. Oh, so wow. that I'd like to see changed. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see uh, the. Um, so currently, there is a uh, a cap on the number of green cards that can be issued in the extraordinary ability category every year. Okay. Now, what happens is if the number of applicants in a given year exceeds that cap, there's a line to get that green card. And we actually had this retrogression um, up until February of last year. So I actually had some athletes who were qualified for the green card. I couldn't get them the green card. I was forced to get them visas to hold them in status before we could apply for a green card because there was a line to get the green card. Okay, it was crazy. Um, But one of the things that I would like to see um, is to have the cap for extraordinary ability visas lifted because it doesn't make sense to to limit the number of you know world class athletes. You know, and this classification really applies beyond athletics. It's also um, applicable to artists, to scientists, to people who work in education, um, and to people who work in business. So literally, this is like the best of the best from every field in the world, and it doesn't make lots of sense to limit the number of those people that come to the U.S. because. You know, we all know that those people contribute positively to the U.S. in so many ways. So, um, so those are, I think, my my two big asks for uh, from the Biden administration. Okay, okay. Well, we we hope we have some changes pretty soon. Now that we have a, a change in our administration, you know, so which will definitely help the athletes because you know, with the cap, I, I definitely would not like the cap. The fact that it draws from other um, discipline too, so that yeah. that that doesn't make much sense there. All right, so I'm gonna throw you a ticklish question now, you know, because you know, Ian is the athlete and I am the cricketer, so mm-hmm. you know, I know I may have some of my friends watching later, and they may be like, "Man, what's in it for me as a cricketer?" And mm-hmm. I know it may not be your specialty dealing with cricket, because cricket in America is just basically starting to grow. Let's yeah. say you have somebody from outside the country that is very good at cricket and with the leagues that now been put on here in the US, now being recognized the league, and they want to come over here. How difficult of a process would that be? And you know, how much knowledge do you have of, of, of these sports? <clears throat> so that's a great question. So I'll be honest, I don't know very much about cricket, but I can tell you because I actually just had a conversation with a cricketer um, about a couple of weeks ago. Cricket is actually a sport that's going to work a little bit differently at the P visa level than track and field. Okay. And the reason why is because there is a different provision that's available for people who play in major or minor leagues, right? 
So provided that the league, the cricket league that the person is coming to play for, meets certain criteria about revenue, the number of teams, etc., they can actually petition on a blanket petition. So one team can sponsor on one application multiple athletes who don't have to independently prove that they're internationally recognized. And that's just a benefit that's available to major leagues in certain sports, um, you know, plus the minor leagues who are affiliated with those major leagues. So, um, so for cricket, you'll probably be looking at these blanket petitions for, um, you know, for athletes, for the major leagues, um, uh, minor leagues, we, you know, you'd have to run analysis, but I imagine that the major league would probably meet the revenue uh, figures for the Compete Act application. And we see this with, um, you know, with people who come over to play like indoor soccer, um, another developing sport in the US. I don't know if you guys, have you ever heard of futsal? It's a Brazilian sport. Yeah, it's a Brazilian sport. I just learned about this um, a couple years ago because I had an athlete who came in who was playing indoor soccer here, but he's actually, um, you know, in Brazil, he's very well known as a futsal player. And futsal, the best way that I can understand it and, the, you know, um, based on what he explained to me and, you know, what little Googling I did is it's kind of a hybrid between basketball and soccer. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's a kick kicking game that's played on a hard court um but really interesting because they're actually starting a league in the u.s as well so it sounds like there are a number of these you know developing sports that are big in other countries that are coming in um into the u.s and that athletes who are affiliated with these leagues could potentially um you know benefit from being sponsored by these teams but in that case ian what i would say is you probably want to once they know which team um, they're, you know, potentially going to be contracted with, then it would be best for the uh, uh, point of contact from that team to actually have the conversation with the immigration attorney, because the first level of analysis of eligibility in that scenario is going to be about the team. And, and they probably actually don't want to have the, the player on the call during this because they, you know, they're very likely not going to want to share revenue figures and some of the other things that are going to be um, discussed with uh, the athlete. So, you know, what I like to tell my athletes in those kinds of situations is have, the, you know, somebody from the team call me, let me talk to them and then kind of, you know, take it from there. Okay. Um, so thank you for that. And I, I know they will be happy to hear, you know, and at least to check it out to see because definitely it's going to be a sports to reckon with sooner or later here in the usa and uh, our next question i know we're we're talking with individuals now mm -hmm. but even back to track and field as mm -hmm. a team say a relay team coming our, our school is coming here with a group mm -hmm. of athletes it, is there any is it have to be an individual basis or there's a leverage for the team on a whole to say come to the pen relays how does that work yeah, so track would still be handled on an independent basis because the, the teams are really more of like an ad hoc situation as opposed to like they're actually being, you know, a league of teams that play here, you know, in the same way that like, you know, sort of NFL, NBA, MLB play. So, um, yeah, so I think just um, the structure of the sport's fundamentally different. So they, they would not be eligible for those uh, Compete Act petitions, but they... Um, you know, I, I think most athletes are coming over here to do like relays at some of these major events probably 
you know, qualify for um, for the P. And if not, again, you know, if they just need to come in, run the relay and go home, then the B1 is a good option. All right, I'm gonna touch a little bit on the emotion side of it now. Um, so <laughs> you did mention that, you know, you had one athlete, we didn't call any name or anything, but actually being denied a visa. So I would say you basically have like a 99% <laughs> you know, yeah. track record, but yeah. As a lawyer representing that person, and you know that that event probably meant the world to him, or just you know just to get that visa, and the person was denied at that particular time. Um, how does it make you, as a lawyer representing that person, um, feel overall? I mean, you know, if you talk to any immigration lawyers, um, if you talk to us before January twentieth, it was just a constant barrage of. Um, ridiculous things happening every day. The Trump administration made more than a thousand changes to immigration law over the course of four years. Um, that puts it at an average of about one per business day. So you constantly felt like like there were things that were flying at you every day. It was just the most stressful time for my career that is compounded by the situation with this athlete who is eminently qualified, objectively eminently qualified. And, you know, the decision that we got made me rage um, because it wasn't like there were portions of it that were incomprehensible like the the language like i, di I didn't even know what they were saying um because it appeared to be like a cut and paste job from multiple places so it wasn't like complete sentences it wasn't like you know i don't know if the person spoke really bad english i don't know what it was but there were portions of it that made no sense it was just, and, and it was it was outrageous. I'm still outraged about it. Um, and, you know, obviously, um, you know, I'm very proud of what I do. I'm a very competitive person by nature. This is a job that I put everything I have into. I'm a perfectionist. Um, you know, I do a thorough job for my clients. And, um, you know, and I have a very good sense of who's qualified and who's borderline, right? And if this was one of those borderline cases, I'd go to him and I'd say, hey, you know, I'm really sorry. We were, you know, we talked about this. It was kind of, you know, it was 50-50. Um, it looks like it didn't go your way. Would you like to try to, you know, wait a little bit and reapply? But with this guy, it was just, it was offensive, Ian. It was just offensive. And the emotional toll for me on things like that is significant. Um, you know, not only because I feel like there, there have been all these, you know, procedural hurdles and, um, you know, and outrageous things in the decisions that I've seen from, um, you know, the request from evidence that I've seen for some of my athletes and, you know, some of the um, decisions that I've seen. I consult other attorneys. So a lot of times like an attorney will reach out to me, they get something messy. They're like, hey, what would you do? Um, so I, I do a lot of consulting work. So overall, it's just, it really got to me. You know, it really got to me. Like, I'd, I'll be honest, I'm a pretty strong person, but I had a cry over that one. Um, you know, and it's just, it's something that I will fight tooth and nail until we win. Um, and I believe we will. So, you know, it, I think one of the things that I get um, from my athletes is the sense of never giving up, you know, is that, you know, you fail, um, 
you pick yourself right up, you dust yourself off and you go at it again until until you get there. And, you know, and I think that one of the things that makes this particular thing more emotionally difficult is if I felt like I didn't do a good job, it would be different. But I know I did a great job for him and I know he did a great job, you know, with all of his accomplishments. So the fact that it was so undeserved is um, is really what makes it more emotionally taxing, I think. Well, all right. So I'm going to make a flip of what's been happening, because as we say, it's here to educate and uh, inspire and motivate. So with you, we definitely see that you do a lot of work for your athlete. So what I want to uh, in, in terms of getting them their visa or their green card, um, what I want to ask you, and, and this is just to throw it out there so these athletes know, under what condition can an athlete have his or her visa or green card revoked? There are lots of things. So, um, you know, obviously not uh, complying with the terms of the visa. You know, this is what we see a lot is we see athletes who don't know the restrictions of their status, right? So we talked a little bit about the uh, the OPT and the athletes who, um, you know, or other students who are working in a field that's not within their uh, major, right? Um, you know, things like getting a side job, that's a violation of status. Um, getting arrested is a problem. Um, you know, even minor arrests can be a problem for immigration status. Overstaying even by a day is going to get your visa revoked. Um, you know, so these are all things that we need to be mindful of. And, you know, um, my advice to any athlete whatsoever is, you know, don't sit on it. Don't wonder if you have questions, you need to get those questions answered. Um, you know, if you if you're sitting here wondering, should I be doing that? Can I do that with my visa? You need to ask somebody before you do it, because if you already do it, you could be getting yourself in a mess that's going to be very difficult to get out of. So, um, you know, lying to immigration, providing false documents to immigration, providing false information to immigration is always a problem. Um, arrests can be a problem. Um, not disclosing arrests to immigration can be a problem. I um, had a kid reach out to me a couple years ago who um, he was uh, he was an athlete. He was uh, he was attending college here. He went back home. Um, and I don't know if he was like involved in a bar fight or there was a bar fight that he happened to be present at, but, uh, while he was in his home country, you know, he got arrested and the charges were, uh, were pending. Right. And, um, when he applied for the renewal of his visa, he, upon advice from some lawyer who, I don't know what this person was thinking, um, the lawyer told him not to disclose the arrest. And, um, and that was a big mistake because um, they were able to, he actually got the visa. And then um, I believe the story, was, so this wasn't a client, this was just a kid I gave some advice to, but I believe the story was he got the visa, he went to the States, then he went back home and on his next trip, they stopped him at immigration. They were like, hey, you've got charges that you didn't disclose. He got sent back um, home and you know now he's dealing with that. So. Um, you know, and ultimately the charges were dropped. So if he had just disclosed them and said, oh, the charges were dropped, it wouldn't have been a problem. You know, um, he had no convictions. He had nothing that was actually going to be a problem for him. But, you know, the, the whole idea is a lot of times, and this, this extends beyond my athletes, but sometimes people ask me, well, how are they going to find out? And, um, 
and uh, stealing a line from another attorney that um, that said this at a presentation. She said, that's the wrong question. The right question is what are they going to do when they find out? Okay. And that's, and I like to quote that to my clients, you know, so um, you want to be very transparent. Um, you want to get good advice and, you know, there are, um, there are people out there who do this. They're competent to give you this advice. I'm not the only person out there. Um, so if you don't like me, you can go see somebody else, but, but get some advice. So. All right, Cassina, um, quick question here. So as an athlete and I walk into your office, you know, could you just tell us what Cassina is able to do for me as an athlete, athlete and you know, <laughs> Just how you how you would present yourself to me, okay. uh, as as my lawyer. Sure. So, um, so one of the things that my athletes get that none of my other clients get is my cell phone number. Um, wow. So my my other clients, I used to give it out. Were not so respectful with my time. Um, you know, I I made one exception over the course of last year. Gave it to a non-client, and you know, I was eight months pregnant i was really sick um and this person was like blowing up my phone at 11 o'clock at night on a saturday about something that was not an emergency um and getting really mad that i wasn't responding and i was like oh my god are you serious right now um but my athletes are really good about respecting me and you know and i know that if they're calling me at 11 o'clock at night then something happened and i need to respond and i always do um so you know you can talk to people that i've worked with they'll know they'll let you know that the communication is there and i feel like that's important um, and I prioritize that because I, I recognize that, you know, things come up, they, they are frequent travelers and um, the need to travel for them is really critical. So, um, so that's a big factor. Um, you know, one thing that I would mention is actually um, the vast majority of my athletes have never set foot in my office. Um, that is because I work with athletes from all over the world, from all over the US and I'm based in Orlando, Florida. And there are some uh, some training groups here in Orlando, and I work with them, and I work with athletes from those groups, and those athletes are always welcome to come see me in my office. Um, but you know, I also work with uh, with athletes from Altus. I work with athletes from basically you know every part of the U.S. I've got people in California, I got people in New York, I got people in the Carolinas. So um, you know, so what we have set up is a way to work with people seamlessly via you know uh video conference um my you know my paralegals are able to to talk to them through you know whatever form of media seems to be the most convenient based on where in the world they are so you know what they're really getting and i think you know the selling point for my services is this is i get sports um and you have to get sports to to have an advantage in doing what we do because there's so much that can be missed if you don't understand how sports work. And, you know, and I, you know, I know we keep on talking about track, but, and track tends to be the one that I do the most of, but it actually gives me a frame of reference to ask, you know, the right questions of the sports that I'm less familiar with, right? So I don't know exactly how cricket works as a sport, right? I'm not a, a, a cricket fan in the sense that I've never been to a match and I don't know all the rules, but, um, at the same time, because of the work that I've done with track and field, because of the issues that I've seen come up, th that's something that I can screen for in a new sport and, um, and, and ask the right questions. But primarily, you know, what you get is somebody who understands the importance of your travel needs 
and uh, strategizes your case appropriately based on your travel needs and based on the type of sport that you play. So. All right, my final question here. Um, any message for the coaches and um, uh, basically, uh, what do you call it now? The um, Ian, what's what, what's your role again, Ian? Agent. Agent. Yeah, any, yeah. Any message for the coach and the agents that represent these athletes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's the same as it is for the athletes. If you've got questions, ask them. Make sure that you're not doing things willy-nilly. Make sure you're not doing things on a hunch, because we have seen, you know, agents make decisions that really mess up a, a person's immigration status. We, um, you know, I know that there are agents that have relationships with like certain lawyers, like, oh, my best friend's a divorce lawyer, so I'm gonna go ahead and have him prepare this athlete's petition. That is a, manifest, a manifestly bad idea because he may be a phenomenal divorce lawyer, but immigration law is very different. And this is, you know, one of these things that even seasoned immigration lawyers are not always capable of doing well and, um, you know, and don't have the depth of knowledge in this particular field to do it well. So get advice and get competent advice. Um, you know, I'm available, like people uh, shoot me DMs all the time on Instagram, oh, hey, I've got this athlete and they're trying to do this and this and this. You know, if it's not gonna take a ton of my time, I generally respond and I'll tell you, um, you know, oh, okay, this is, you know, something that we would need to investigate further. Let's get you in for a consultation. Or if it's a simple question, I'll answer it. Um, so, you know, so, Feel free to reach out. That's something that, that I'm able to do. But, um, you know, the message is immigration status is important. Um, it's something that, you know, that they should prioritize for their athletes and something that they shouldn't neglect. And, you know, and coaches and athletes or coaches and agents who are foreign nationals, you know, I, I know that we've been talking about athletes this whole time, could potentially be, um, you know, eligible for some of these extraordinary ability um visas like the O and the extraordinary ability green card that we talked about. So, you know, if they have their needs as foreign persons who are coming to the U.S. or if they're interested in getting a green card to the U.S., that may be something that may be available to them, um, regardless of them not being athletes. So if they're just in the athletics field, that's something that may be available to them. Okay, I'm sorry about this one, but since I mentioned mm -hmm. both the agent and the coach, say sponsor and we speak a lot about shoe sponsor mm -hmm. oh you know between that coordination between you and them you know making it easy mm -hmm. the process what can they do to to, to 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 make that transition process as easy as possible for the athletes yeah so actually my philosophy is to bother the you know whoever the petitioner is whether that's you know a shoe company or a coach or an agent or whoever mm -hmm. Um, just as little as I try to bother the athlete, because I know that um, these are people who have things going on um, who shouldn't be bothered for unnecessary things, right? So one of the things that we have set up is a process that sort of organizes this in a way that says, okay, we will need to touch base with you at the very beginning, and we need to touch base with you at the very end. And in the middle, we're going to do our thing and try to stay out of your hair because you've got more important things to think about. So... Um, you know, what can they do on their end is, you know, be cooperative in having that initial communication with me and having that final communication with me. That's pretty much it. All right. Thank you very much for sharing all those, you know, valuable information with us. 
So, my pleasure, my pleasure. Yeah, turn you right back over to Ian. All right, guys, thank you. So we're in the last 10 minutes of the program now, and uh, I think that you guys uh, went over some very good information. So I got to, you know, make sure I don't duplicate those. But uh, one of the questions that I want to, you know, um, tag along with is um, a volunteer work. So as if you're on a, a, a P1 or a, a B visa, can you do volunteer work? That's a great question. And, um, you know, reasonable minds disagree on this, right? I like to kind of take the conservative road because I don't want my athletes to have problems, right? But generally, volunteer work, um, you know, that that is really just a thinly veiled job offer that you don't want to do. Like, okay, so if you're an athlete and, you know, and you're here during Thanksgiving and somebody invites you to, you know, to hand out hot meals during Thanksgiving, I think that's generally fine, right? But if you're volunteer coaching somewhere, that's probably a problem because that's just, that's that's really a job. You should be getting paid for that. Um, you know, where if you're volunteering as a, um, you know, I don't know, as a consultant somewhere, volunteering, you know, let's say you have a degree as, um, you know, in engineering, and you're volunteering at, um, you know, Lockheed Martin, that's probably a bad idea. Okay? So don't volunteer if it's not genuine volunteering opportunities. If you're going to play with kitties and puppies at the local SPCA, have fun, um, you know, handing out hot meals, that's all good. We, we want you to be involved in the community, you know, little clinics for the kiddos, fine. But, um, you know, but kind of think about whether if it looks like a job, it's not a volunteer day. <laughs> Oh man, that's a tough one there. Cause you know, I know that gotta be, you know, if you're not getting paid, um, if you're not making money. So I didn't know the difference between the work, if it's work for not getting paid or if you're getting paid, that's kind of work. So, I mean, you know, so um, yeah. But thanks for that clarification um, with that. Uh, my next question, still about money. Um, mm -hmm. So we did say like uh, athletes are able to make money from races if they're on um, a B1 or a P1 visa, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Or an O1 as well, or a green oh, card, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. oh, okay. All right, so get into the, just the, the logic stick of the paperwork. Um, on an average, um, how long you, you would say that the process take? I know that got to be one of the number one questions that everybody asks. Um, well, how long this is going to take me? Um, I got to compete um, in three months, so um, I don't want to miss um, this race or this season. You know, yeah. uh, how 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 you handle those situations, or what's the the time or the advice with you with you? Right. Yeah. So you you definitely as soon as you know you got to be in the U.S., you want to talk to somebody about you know what your timing should be, and it's going to be a little bit different for you know for different people depending on their you know their current situation so like do they have a visa they can come in on right so if they've got a b1 i may say come in on the b1 and then we'll you know work on it while you're here if they're going to be staying for a while you know if they don't have a b1 um and you know they need to go get a visa we're going to be looking at their consulate to see what kind of visa appointments are available can we get a b can we get a p um you know those are going to be factors in terms of my work so how long does it take me to prepare <laughs> one of these bad boys um you know it depends um it's it's faster for track 
because like I said, because of world athletics, we can just pull everything down and then I have to just um, sit down and find time to write um, a 10 to 15 page ode to the accomplishments of the athlete. We do like a cover letter that like is 10 to 15 pages that explains down to, you know, the, the very basics, what, you know, each competition means and the significance and, you know, and uh, why this accomplishment is a significant accomplishment in the sport. So, um, you know, I would say from the time I get everything in from the athlete, we can usually turn it around within a couple of weeks. Um, you know, if if we start having our phone ring off the hook after this uh, this <laughs> podcast, that, that may have that may change because I am a one woman show at this point. So I'm I'm the only attorney in my office who does this. Um, you know, obviously I get help from my paralegal staff, but. I'm going to be the one who actually drafts the the legal provisions, you know, so the the cover letters for um, these petitions. Like I said, it's, it's a 10 to 15 page project. So, you know, and it's it's very technical. I have to sit and, you know, sort of organize hundreds of exhibits into this letter that explains everything. So it, it takes a little mm -hmm. bit of time. But, you know, we can usually do it within a couple of weeks for uh, for the, the sports that, um, you know, that have the information readily available. But um, it depends on my schedule. Okay. But that's my work, right? How long it takes once it's filed with immigration yeah. depends on so many factors, right? So um, there is standard processing and then there's premium processing, okay? So if you want your case decided by immigration within 15 days, you can pay them an extra $2,500 and they'll decide it within 15 days. That is often a trigger for them to just ask you for more information because they often are so behind on these requests for 15-day adjudications that they'll they'll just ask you for all the stuff you already submitted and then you have to sit there and write them a letter that says hey i submitted this i submitted this i submitted this see exhibit this this and this and it's you know and then your lawyer is going to charge you for that so um you know is it necessary in certain cases? Yes, but is it a good idea in certain others? Probably not. It's always a strategic consideration, and we kind of talk about, you know, the merits of the case, the timing of the athlete's uh, travel needs, all that. So, uh, you know, I, I like to customize every strategy. This is by no means a, um, you know, sort of a conveyor belt operation, and it shouldn't be. Um, every case has, you know, some dimension of something that's different. Okay, awesome. And um, I got a tricky question here so for a, for a young athlete 15 16 great potential mm -hmm. that want to come um to the u.s say for instance they just want to come here and train for the olympics how difficult or how different would it be for someone around that age uh, that really depends right it depends on whether i mean i would say that for them to have a good chance it would have to be the type of sport where that age category competes in the senior division. So something like gymnastics, right? Like they're pretty young. They'll go to, you know, the Olympics at 13, 14, 15. Um, I would say that with, you know, with good results, like a gymnastics athlete probably could. I would say probably not for track though. Okay, okay. Because we got, you know, but if they're, if they're actually turning professional, that might be a different thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but... Yes, I think if they're training professional, if they're competing at the senior level and they have the accomplishments at the senior level, then then probably yes. But I would say for, you know, for sort of these athletes that are on track, you know, to get to where they need to be at that age category, they're probably looking at student visas to go to some of these, um, you know, these sports intensive schools that, you know, like the private schools that have 
the sports education, um, you know, that you can get a student visa for. So I think that's probably what they're, they should be looking at at that point. All right. So for, for all your clients, all your athletes that you help. And so when, when your job is done, what would you want them to remember the most about you? Um, I, I would just want them to come away with a sense that, you know, that we did the work, that we did it in a way that was, you know, not taxing for them. Because, you know, I realized from being around athletes how much they have on their shoulders, right? Um, that, you know, it's so much more than the, the physical um, training, that there's all these like emotional things that are um, a demand on your attention and on your emotional capital. And a lot of times we're working on this during a year when they're going to, you know, they're training for the Olympics or they're training for Worlds. And what I want them to be able to come away and say is like, look, I had a great experience. She didn't bother me when I didn't need to be bothered. You know, it was seamless. It was easy. Um, you know, we had a good time. And then I want to hang out with them at the track meets when I go because I do that. Yeah, I, I follow my athletes around. Uh, I hang out with them. Um, you know, at Worlds, I hang out with them at various track meets around the U.S. And, you know, because like I said, I'm, I'm a fan. All right. All right. All right. Well, that's definitely impressive. So uh, I'm going to finish with um, two questions. They're probably not immigration related now, um, okay. but I'm just curious to know. Um, so what did you say? What did you admire most about athletes just working with, with athletes, um, you know, especially in track and field? Um, what did from you, from your perspective as a lawyer working with track and field athletes, what do you admire and, you know, and something that you pretty much um, see in them or learn from them to, to your career? I mean, I think the tenacity, I think the the resolve to keep doing it no matter what, you know, um, even when the results incrementally can be very small, right? Um, you know, to just really to push so hard to shave off that hundredth of a second, right? Um, I, I think it takes a, a certain kind of person and, and, you know, and not everyone is like that. I mean, I know that for me, it's really easy if I'm just, you know, working out at the gym, if I don't see results within a couple of months, I'm like, I, I start to get in that slut, right? But to keep believing, to keep pushing and, um, you know, and, and truly to be able to balance everything. One of the things that I think, you know, goes back to sort of um, old stereotypes, right? Um, is we, I'm sure we've all heard these things, right? That the, the dumb, dumb jock stereotype. And one of the things that I have been blessed to be able to dispel for people is the dumb jock stereotype because my athletes um, who are my clients and my friends and everyone that I've interacted with in the industry has had a depth of character, um, a depth of intellect, a depth of you know worldly experience that far exceeds the average person, I think. Um, and they don't get enough credit for that, you know? And if, if you just follow some of these athletes, the things they say, um, you know, the conversations I've had over the years with Justin, sometimes, you know, he really like, he would just blow my mind and, you know, and I'm somebody like, I'm a bit of an intellectual snob. So I, I've definitely had those conversations where, you know, Justin would say something really profound and I'd be like, Dang, wow, that's deep. Like, I didn't expect that. And then I would be like, why didn't I expect that? I need to check myself. Right. I need to check myself for that, uh, for that stereotype. So <laughs> I think that's it, you know? All right. 
All right. So this is not a fun question for you. Um, I know we dig into the immigration. So if mm -hmm. you was a, if you were the athlete, what what event do you think you probably would be doing? Um, so I will tell you a fun story. Okay. So in 2013 in Moscow, um, Justin snuck me into the practice field by telling the guards that I was a speed a, a speed walker, a race walker. Is it a speed walker or a race walker? Is it race walking, right? Yeah. So I guess I would be that. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not much of a runner. I lift, but, but the running, the running hurts. I admire you guys. I do. All right. All right. Another fun athletic question. What, what, since you've been to the athletic championship and stuff, what, what are your three best moments or a few, a couple moments that you just um, remember going to the world championship or wherever event yeah. you've been to? So definitely the light show in Doha was yeah. amazing. Uh, seeing it in the stadium and live, I mean, I don't think anybody was expecting that. And I think, you know, it elevated the energy uh, to such an extent and really, I think, elevated the bar for the organization of these events. I'm really curious to see how, um, you know, how we're going to handle that here in the U.S. and if we're going to try to do something similar or just leave it in Doha. Um, so that was definitely a moment. Um, obviously, you know, having been friends with Justin for so long, um, you know, London, him beating Bolt finally um, was really important for him. And, you know, and by extension as a friend for me, um, because, you know, I saw him work for it for so long. And um, that was a, a really great moment. And uh, in Moscow, the third world championship that I went to, I think for me, it was uh, a really great opportunity to kind of share a little bit of my culture um, with some of the people that I knew. Um, you know, I, I was taking Justin's parents around everywhere and translating for them and kind of uh, orienting them around public transportation. And then, you know, some of the other folks who came from English speaking countries were, um, you know, tagging along because they you know everything is in Cyrillic. And it's, it's, you know, it's a difficult it's a difficult city to navigate, because unlike a lot of the places where these other track meets happen, where you can kind of stop somebody on the street and ask a question about how do I get there? Nobody in Moscow speaks English like that. So, um, so it was just kind of nice to be there um, in that moment with them. All right. Going to give a shout out to Mr. Temper Ivan, Ivan, or if I mispronounce his name, but he lives in Doha and he's a Jamaican, uh -huh. you know, and we, when it was at the world championship, it was just amazing just to, you know, to, to link up together. And, um, you know, he has a big beach party where he invite, uh, people to, to come that was visiting but yeah it was amazing to to find that um you know people from the islands in the caribbean lived in doha working so we want to give a shout out to to, to him right now um all right so i think we have pretty much come to the end of um our show um it was very 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 um inspiration and um you know i i pretty much um was definitely um impress and you know educated just to get some of the you know because i i've been through this stuff years ago um over 20 years ago and i know things has changed i mean things has continue continuously changed so but just to able to um hear you put light in some of these areas you know that 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 was good um for us so that's um 
what I have to say, I again just thank you for sharing your Sunday evening with us. Uh, I know that um, you are very passionate about your work, and um, you know we'll definitely see you helping so many athletes um, in in the sport, the track and field, and continue to do. So we thank you for for for, for to, to, to to joining the track and field family. Um, you know because you are um, not many. Um, you know, attorney would take time off from their from their practice to traveling. You know, and and actually watch one of their clients. And I know that got to make you feel good to see them succeed in 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 in, in what they do. So um, on behalf of um, you know Ian and Ian, um, we will definitely type um, for anybody that wanted to contact you. Uh, again, we know that it's the sports visa lawyer. It's the only one that exists, you know, um, and uh, I'm gonna just let you say um, how someone could contact you. We probably will type it in the comment and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Ian seemed like he has a final word, so go along, Ian. No, Ian, if you, if you didn't allow me to ask this question, I, I would be mad with you, man. So uh, <laughs> I don't wanna close out yet, Canisia. I, I, I really, you know, we have basically have you basically being quizzed, you know, you have presented so much information. So the, I have three questions, which one I, I want to make it all about you now, right? In the okay. final. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when you put away all that stockpile of Upwork, and we see the thickness <laughs> in just one file, when you yeah. put away all that stockpile of, of paperwork, just tell us, where do you go for relaxation? So relaxation. Um, I'm a beach person. I actually love Jamaica. Um, yeah, so um, I, you know, I live in Florida, but I prefer sort of the tropical vacations, tropical destinations, obviously, you know, with COVID, it's just been such a challenge um, to sit at home for me. I'm a world traveler. I've been to like 40 countries. Um, wow. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that this affords me that kind of goes along with my personality is I am a seeker of new experiences, right? So I like, I will go and eat weird stuff. Um, you know, you know, my friends take me to eat Jamaican food and I'm like, is this brains or is this stomach? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, all right, it's pretty good. Um, you know, and I, I'm with it. So, um, you know, so it's just being able to seek out new experiences. So when I'm, when I'm not in the office, I'm generally trying to be at a beach somewhere, trying to have some quiet time. Um, but honestly, I haven't taken a vacation since Doha. And and those are kind of like my vacations, right? Like when I go to Worlds, those are my vacations from the office. So um, it, it's been a while, it's been a while. It's been really busy. I had a baby last year. So, um, you know, so it was a crazy year uh, or this year, actually, this year, last year, 2020, goodness gracious. Yeah, what a year. <laughs> All right. And in and, and that sense, again, we just want to ask you uh, two things that you're most grateful for in life, you know, as a, as a person. All right. So really easy. It's, it's one. America. Seriously. Um, you know, my mother came here in 1991 with $36 in her pocket. Wow. Um, she was a single mom. She was 29 years old. And, you know, everything that I have, everything that I've been blessed with is a direct function of everything that makes America great. 
And, you know, and when I say makes America great, I don't mean it in the white nationalist sense. You know, I mean it in the let's talk about our melting pot. Let's talk about all the wonderful people here who come from all these different cultures, who bring the best from their country, who bring their talents, who bring their culture and share it with each other. Um, multiculturalism is the way forward and um, the great American melting pot is, you know, is proof of the fact that it's successful. So for me, the, you know, the number one thing that I, you know, I sometimes will sit down and I'll reflect on it. I'm like, my God, we came from such poverty. You know, um, my mom didn't have money to feed me in Russia when we left. Like she was literally, we were food uncertain. And, um, you know, and to be able to have all the blessings that we have here is something that I sit down and I thank God for every single day. Oh, I, I think many of us can say that, you know, we, we basically love America in that it affords us the opportunity. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have so much client coming because they want to be, they want a part of it, they, you know, especially people coming from a third world country. Because you, you, you mentioned Jamaica, that you love Jamaica. We're a third world country. A lot of us come over here for the opportunity that it offers, whether it be our talent that bring us here, whether it be a spouse, a family. However it is, we try to hold on to it with both hands, you know, so we are all thankful for America in that sense. And my final question to you now is, if it wasn't you being a lawyer, what else? Nothing. I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was nine. I, you know, I told my parents, my parents tried to convince me otherwise. So my mom um, is a teacher and my american stepfather who raised me who i call my dad is a is an airline pilot third generation airline pilot so his father his grandfather um they were both airline pilots as well and so i was his youngest child and his last hope to make a fourth generation for uh for being a pilot and he really wanted me to fly and i was like nope i said at age nine i said i was going to be a lawyer and at age 11 i said i was going to go to berkeley for law school and i did both of those things and i did them because america is great thank you so much so as ian was saying we we're so pleased to have you on this afternoon we thank really you so much appreciate everything that you have done here on the platform you did not fail to inspire educate motivate and you know we give you the last word because you know earlier as you started Ines Turner you know one of our Jamaican Olympian you know she was like man make sure you don't leave this platform without us you know knowing exactly how to find you so you know we're just gonna leave you with the platform unless Ian have something else to say so you just tell it to them Ian, do you have something else? Oh, he's on mute now. Yeah, well, you... all right. Okay, there go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I just really wanted to thank both of you for the opportunity to be here. Um, you know, when I spoke to Ian a couple uh, a couple weeks ago on the phone, I was just, you know, I was telling him how grateful I was for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. You've had some people here whose shadows I do not deserve to stand in, but um, so I'm grateful that you found it worthwhile to have this conversation with me. And, you know, what I really appreciate about your podcast is just how, um, how personable and how authentic and how genuine your presentation is. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, people kind of delve into, um, you know, a sort of cult of personality and, um, you know, and really don't get to the nitty gritty of, you know, of some of the, uh, the the real genuine aspects of a person. And I really appreciate that you, that you all do that and that your purpose is to motivate 
which is, you know, generally my purpose. Everything that I do is to share the American dream with people because it has given so much to me. So I think in that sense, you know, we are united in purpose. And um, to the extent that anyone needs to get in touch with me for Immigration Matters, um, I am on Instagram as Sports Visa Lawyer, so without the the. Um, so, and you can find me there. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under Sports Visa Lawyer, and um, I'll just send the links to Ian. I'm sure he can add them in the comments as well. But I would be happy to speak to you all and see how we can um, take your case forward. If you have a case, like I said, if you're an agent, if you're a coach, and you have an issue with an athlete, if you need to know, can we do this? Um, you know, just shoot me a message because I would rather, you know, give you a, a five minutes of my time and tell you, you know, no, you can't, or you need to be careful, or you need to do this first, then have somebody, you know, really mess up their immigration status. We're all in this together. Um, you know, again, thank you for the opportunity. It's It's been great. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Thank you. All right, thank you.